With Elevate 150 from Notre Dame Federal Credit Union, you can grow financially stronger and so can Redeemer Radio. Visit NotreDameFCU.com slash Elevate. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Every August, Bishop celebrates the Mass with Perpetual Profession of Vows for the Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. So on this episode, he breaks down what happens during this type of Mass. Then he reflects upon the important role those living a form of consecrated life have for the mission of the Church and the world. The show wraps up with listener-submitted questions on Eucharistic adoration, atheists, and Bishop's favorite liturgical feast. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop. Thank you for taking some time out of your busy schedule to share some information with us. You're welcome, Kyle. Good to see you. August has begun. Yeah. Do you like August? Yeah, I do. But it's it's um, means summer's kind of wrapping yeah. up. That's yeah. a little sad, but it's still a good month. Cools down a little bit. Back to school. Yeah. It kind of gets crazy for us. Yeah. I wish school didn't start until after Labor Day, like the old days. Well, can't you make that happen? Uh, I don't think so. At least for our Catholic schools? I think we follow the public school okay. calendar. I think we have to. I don't know. We need the buses. Yeah. All right. Well, do you have a memory of the first time that you were at a sister or brother's perpetual profession of vows? Wow, that's a good question. Would you have been I think it, I, I really or? don't remember. I, I might have been already uh, a priest. Okay. I'm not I can't remember anyone going to anyone's profession of vows when I was growing up. Do those tend to be well attended or more private? I think it depends. Um, I celebrate the Mass with the perpetual profession of uh, the Sisters of St. Francis of Perpetual Adoration every year right. in August. And uh, that's usually very well attended. It will have the family, relatives, friends of, of the sisters, plus the, the, the sisters themselves. A lot of the sisters from all over come for that. It's a big day in the life of the community. And because that is the this is the season, I guess, thought maybe we could talk a little bit about that. And so Mary and I kind of brainstormed a bunch of questions that we have about these vows for religious orders and thought maybe we could just run through a bunch of questions. That'd be fine. Okay. So I maybe just start with what does perpetual profession of vows mean? Okay. Well, first of all, religious profession or or a profession of vows is the the profession of living the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Mm -hmm. Those are the three evangelical counsels. And in the Catholic Church, those who are members of religious institutes, uh, we usually just say religious orders, religious congregations, they make these public vows that they're going to observe the three evangelical counsels. And through the ministry of the church, they're consecrated to God, okay. and they're incorporated into the institute, the religious institute, like I mentioned, the Sisters of St. Francis. Now, it could be a religious institute of men. It could be the Dominicans or the Franciscans or the Jesuits or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, or other religious institutes of women. 
like the poor Claire. Some of them are contemplative institutes. Some of them are active institutes. Besides religious institutes, the church also recognizes profession of vows, the evangelical councils, on the part of those who live as hermits. Okay. So they are not members of religious institute, but they are also dedicated to God and live in a consecrated life and publicly profess the three evangelical councils. Now, when you say asked about perpetual, that mm -hmm. means for life. Okay. But usually that's preceded by a, by a temp, by temporary vows. Uh -huh. So they make a religious, that's after they've gone through their formation, including the novitiate, they make temporary vows. And that's usually for a period of not less than three years and not longer than six years. Okay. So they, so it's kind of, um, they make the vows, but they don't make a lifetime commitment yet. But when they've completed the temporary, uh, that period of temporary profession, they can petition for perpetual profession. And they have to be approved for that too. And they have to freely petition that. So hopefully that that's helpful. And what kind of formation is either uh, common or I don't know if it's required? Is there any like standards from oh, the yeah. church of saying this kind of formation has to happen before perpetual yeah. vows? The Code of Canon Law okay. actually has, um, has what's required. There is in religious institutes the, the requirement of a, of a novitiate. Mm -hmm. That's an especially intense time of preparation before they make temporary vows of either one or two years. But prior to that, there's usually a formation time as well. That kind of depends on each institute. For example, a lot or most have what's called a period of postulancy. Mm -hmm. Uh, and some even have a period of discernment before that. So usually there's a few years even prior to doing the novitiate and then the temporary vows. Live in temporary vows from three to six years and then petition for final vows or what we call perpetual vows. Are there standards for what kind of theology formation happens? It's tailored to each the charism of each particular institute. Okay. But certainly they all would be learning fundamentals of theology. Mm -hmm. They'd all have some scripture study. They would have, you know, studying theology. But they would also be learning a lot about the life of the institute and their founder or foundress. They'd learn about, you know, the spiritual formation is really important. Mm -hmm. Formation of living in community learning about living the vows, so there would be spiritual direction. So there's a lot to that formation, but it would be tailored to the specific charism of each institute. Does that usually happen internally, or do they go to a, a university or a seminary or take online classes? No, the novitiate would be internal. Okay. So they would have one of the religious would be the novice master or the novice mistress who's <laughs> in charge. And they would have a daily regimen of prayer and community life. So it would be structured. There are some provinces where various provinces of the Institute may join and have one novitiate together somewhere you know, so that they're the same religious congregation, but they come from different provinces together for their preparation as novices. And the members of the community, either brothers or sisters, 
would answer to their superior. Correct. And that kind of serves as their bishop of sorts as far as they're, they're taking obedience to their superior. Correct. What is the role of a bishop overseeing a religious order that's in the diocese? Yeah. The bishop has no authority over their internal life, their okay. internal governance, but on the external, yes, because the bishop has responsibility for all the apostolic activity and the liturgical life in the diocese. Mm -hmm. So for a religious community to come into a diocese, it has to have the bishop's permission. So there is a certain amount of oversight that the bishop has when it comes to their external uh, their external life, their external activity, or their apostolic activity, mm -hmm. but not regarding how they uh, their internal life, unless it's a diocesan institute. But most of the institutes that, that you would be familiar with or that are here in our diocese, they're pontifical. So they answer directly to Rome. Okay. So, for example, the Holy Cross mm -hmm. priests, the Holy Cross brothers, the Holy Cross sisters, they're all pontifical. Okay. Uh, same with the Sisters of St. Francis of Perpetual Adoration. Uh -huh. They're pontifical. The poor handmaids of Jesus Christ, they are pontifical. The Victory Knoll Sisters. So the only diocesan community at this point are the poor Clares oh. in Fort Wayne, the poor Sisters of St. Clair. Okay. So they would come directly under, under me. And so you, uh, what would be the term for you being at the vows are you witnessing the vows are you performing a ceremony what oh that's what good. would you call that no well what i'm doing is celebrating the mass okay preaching the homily uh but when it comes time for them to do vows they do that uh, they profess the vows to their religious superior okay i'm just on the side at that okay. point so could a priest also yeah be part of that mass and a right. bishop isn't necessary for right the bishop's vows. not necessary okay and of course, I give a special blessing to the uh, the person being professed and all that. But but the actual reception of the vows is done by the superior. So, how would you say that it's similar or different from, say, an ordination mass for a priest, and or a marriage for a couple that is getting married? Because I feel like sometimes they're they're looped together as like these are these permanent vocations that you're. You're signing on to for life. Well, fundamentally, it's not a sacrament. You okay. know, that's, that's the key thing. It's not, you know, a sacrament is an outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace. So this is not a sacrament. The religious profession, religious consecration is not a sacrament. I mean, it's something very holy. Mm -hmm. It's a state in life. The consecrated life is something very, very beautiful. And, and the church needs this witness to the gospel that we see of men and women who are following the chaste, poor, and obedient Jesus. And they are, you know, supposed to be living the evangelical councils in a, in a way that's an inspiration for other members of the faithful. Mm -hmm. So it is a very important way of life in the church, something that brings much spiritual fruit to the body of Christ, and oftentimes apostolic fruits. A lot of the those in consecrated life are doing wonderful apostolic works. Mm -hmm. Others, their life is primarily, if not exclusively, of prayer, which also is very fruitful for the life of the church. And there are these different forms of consecrated life that help to build up the body of Christ. And uh, we really need to encourage this vocation more. Um, 
you know, we've seen certainly a significant decline in the numbers of men and women who are in the consecrated life. And, um, you know, this is a gift to the church, and it's a gift that that I think we need to hold up more mm-hmm. for our young people to consider yeah. that this is is something that is really at the very heart of the church. So I, I, I try to do that. I, you know, it's a little more challenging, especially if young people have never met a religious or right. someone in the consecrated life, but um, it's a precious gift from the Lord. So I hope that we'll see maybe a rebirth in vocations uh, to the consecrated life. Are you seeing that at all right now? Do you think? Some, yeah. yes, especially some young women who've entered communities of women religious. A few are, have joined our own Sisters of St. Francis. Mm-hmm. And we have some young men who've joined religious orders as mm-hmm. well. Since I've been bishop here, we have had uh, a number, not a large number, but maybe one or two young people a year that I hear about that have entered a religious community. Do you think that's more than in the past? More than the recent past. Recent, right, right. Uh, certainly 40 years ago, there were dozens and dozens entering every year. Yeah. It also seems like there's different orders that kind of are, some orders are decreasing in numbers and some orders are increasing in numbers and kind of, has that been common historically that, that there's kind of a, a popularity with certain orders that kind of grows and then shrinks and grows and shrinks? Yeah, I think it is. I think it does go in ups and downs throughout history. I mean, if you look early on, you had the Benedictines, you know, Mm -hmm. and that was a very specific, you know, it was first major monastic order and following the rule of St. Benedict. And then that was strong for centuries until the mendicant orders came in the you know, 13th century. And even though Benedictines remained, then there was a big growth in the mendicants, whereas the Benedictines, you know, took a vow of stability and lived in a monastery. The mendicants were traveling. They were the Franciscans. They were going out. The mm-hmm. Dominicans, they were going out. So this was a new form of consecrated life in the church that came about in the 13th century. Right. And so that became large. And then you had in the 16th century, the Jesuits, and that became more of a missionary order, mm-hmm. and they attracted thousands. Um, and then you had the, the wonderful uh, female religious active communities. There were a lot of cloistered nuns. Mm-hmm. But then in the 18th, 19th century, you had this blossoming of active congregations of women religious who were teachers and nurses and all that. And those are the kind of sisters a lot of us are familiar with. So really there's been a development and it's according to the needs of the age where you see these new forms of consecrated life that have arisen. And yet you see, you know, today we still have contemplative orders. We have active religious orders. We've seen a little bit of, of a rebirth of this vocation of, of hermits, mm-hmm. you know, that really kind of had fallen from uh, use for for quite some time. They were major in the early centuries of the church, and now since the new code of canon law, that's another possibility. And then we have the consecrated virgins. Again, that was very prominent in the early church, and there's something of a comeback in that form of consecrated life going on today too. And is that maybe like more like the hermits that it's an individual thing and it's not part of a community. Right. The hermits are individuals. They're not part, they're not part of a religious institute. Uh They are directly under the Bishop. 
and they basically live a solitary life and they have a rule of life that the bishop approves. Okay. And there has to be a life of solitude and prayer mm-hmm. and penance. And for a consecrated virgin, is that a similar thing? Yes, they live in the world. Now, there are consecrated virgins that are part of religious institutes that are uh, that do the this consecration, but okay. uh, I think what we're referring to, like here in our diocese, Jessica Hayes is a consecrated virgin, a woman living in the world mm-hmm. who is uh, has consecrated her life to Christ as, as a bride of Christ, and she's working for the church, serving the church, and, and yet she's living this... Uh, Really beautiful consecration uh, that her spouse is the Lord. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, under your Correct. authority. This isn't part of a, a religious organization. Correct. Yeah. And you mentioning the cloister, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think people use these terms a lot of times interchangeably, but technically a monk or a nun would be cloistered. Correct. They're not going out into the world. They, they live full-time in a, a convent or a monastery and a sister or a brother or a friar would be somebody that does go out in the world. So these would be the sisters that you see maybe in hospitals, schools or whatever. Uh, is that the distinction between the That's two? That's correct. Okay. And, and one of the things about the, uh, is community life. That is really one of the essentials of religious life. Okay. In other words, living together with others, praying together. Um, whereas, for a hermit or a consecrated virgin, no, they're not uh, in a, living with others in the same house, but those in these other communities are. Mm-hmm. And so how do the, with all the diversity of all these different organizations, how do the vows vary from one to the next? Yeah. The, uh, I mean, fundamentally, there's the three evangelical councils, but there can be an added vow. For example, some Jesuits take that fourth vow to the Pope where they go, okay. wherever the Pope will send them. Uh, that goes back to St. Ignatius Loyola himself. But they all don't take that? No. Hmm. No. Okay. With the Missionaries of Charity, Mother Teresa founded, they had a fourth vow of serving the poorest of the poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, yeah, there are some who have those extra vows. How each community lives the vows, I think, um, for example, you can see the priority um, in the Franciscans of the vow of poverty, mm-hmm. and they live it, you know, some of the Franciscan communities very radically. Mm-hmm. So I think when you look at different religious communities, you can see, I mean, fundamentally, the vow of poverty is you don't own anything of your own. Okay. Okay. So anything, possessions, they, they belong to the community. So uh-huh. you, it's not your own. What I think is problematic is if a community accumulates wealth. Right. I don't think that's an authentic, you know, it's important that if they've accumulated wealth from their apostolic works or whatever, that um, that they be serving the poor and that that wealth that's been accumulated not lead to a life of luxury because mm-hmm. that's going against the very spiritual meaning of the vow of poverty. Yeah. So you always have to guard against worldliness and including religious communities, just like us and priests or bishops. We have to avoid luxury, avoid worldliness, Mm -hmm. because to take a vow of poverty, but then live in a rich community, what kind of poverty is that? Even though one doesn't own anything himself or herself. So you do see um, possibility of of living a poor and simple life, even if one is part of a community that has a lot of assets, but it's how they use those assets. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes those assets are buildings. 
because they have schools and hospitals and things like that. Right. Um, but you don't want to ever go to to living in a way that's um, ostentatious or luxurious. Mm -hmm. And there should also, if one, if one does have that kind of excess surplus, then give it away. Right. Give it away to the poor. I had a Dominican tell me one time, I don't own anything. There are just some things that are more mine than anybody else's. <laughs> uh, so I guess some of these orders have different ways of providing for themselves. So going back to St. Paul, you know, he made tents to cover his expenses while preaching. And we see a lot of religious orders that sell things or make things, whether it be coffee or beer or cheese. And they have different ways. There are candles that they you know, make for the church, uh, ways for them to provide for their needs. Hosts. Some sure, of the sure. nuns make hosts that are used at masses. Yeah, but there are others that beg for their money or, or just rely on donations. Is there, I, I guess to be maybe a little crude about this, should they take a break from prayer to get a job to be able to provide for themselves? Or is this a legitimate uh, way of living out the faith? I think it's a legitimate way of living out uh, and and. Look at our poor sisters of St. Clair. They're not making any money, uh -huh. but they're supported by Catholics in Fort Wayne who uh, bring them food and if they need medicine or need something. Now, they live very poorly, mm -hmm. very simply, so they don't need a lot, but they obviously need food. Yeah. Or let's say they might need something, an article of clothing or something. Uh, they beg for it. They uh -huh. ask, and, and our people are so generous. I think it would be awful if they had to give up their life of prayer because that's benefiting us. Right. That's benefiting me and the priests and the people of our diocese that we have these nuns praying for us every day. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't want them to be led from that because they have to provide for themselves and therefore they have to start making things to sell or whatever to make money. And that's not saying they don't do any work. I mean, they clean their house, they sure. write letters, they're, they're, they do things. But they, their, their primary apostolate is prayer. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if I've ever been asked to donate to them. Is there a, I guess maybe their need isn't that great right now because people are being generous. But is there a way to find out where yeah. those needs are for, for people that are? Well, I have a little fund. Uh, it doesn't have much money in it, but it, it's a little fund, for example, if there's a repair that's needed in the convent mm -hmm. or something like that, that. But I don't know. I mean, the sisters just get people that, that take care of it, so we haven't really had to use much of that. There's not much yeah. in it. Uh, but people could give to that if they wanted to or just write and ask them if there's anything they need. Uh, sure. I think they're fine with food. Yeah. But maybe, Kyle, why don't you just go and visit them sometime and ask them? Well, and, know, just bring the kids. and a reminder that they're praying for us and that you can submit. I haven't done this, but I should to probably mail them my prayer requests. Oh, yeah. And things and have the kids do that. Yeah. They're a powerhouse of prayer. Yeah. And so, but I could go and visit them? You could. I mean, it would probably be good to, um, you know, they, you can't go in the convent, but you they have a parlor that has a grill uh -huh. and you can meet with one of the sisters if they're now you'd have to kind of arrange it ahead of time because okay. you know, when would someone be able to meet you that you're not interrupting their prayer or whatever, but right. uh, yeah, you could drop a note sometime or yeah, I'm not quite sure how, how to do that. I mean, uh -huh. I just 
contact them when I want to come over. But I, I was <laughs> having mass once a month for them, although um, I've been missing a couple times because uh, of my other duties. But um, but I love when I get to 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 uh, celebrate mass with them. Okay. Do you have a favorite religious order? Oh my goodness. I don't want to offend anyone <laughs> listening. I, I love the religious orders here in our uh, diocese. I'll say that. Yeah. They all, I just feel a real closeness. And of course, I live with the Sisters of St. Francis when I'm on the South Bend side of the diocese uh, at the Mother House. Right. I have a suite there. So they take such good care of me. I'm so grateful. Uh, it's such a, a quiet place, a beautiful place. Yeah. And, uh, I'm very, very grateful to them. I'm very grateful to, to really all the, the... I'm very close to the Holy Cross priests and brothers. And mm-hmm. we have the Holy Cross sisters and the poor handmaids, the Victory Knoll sisters. They, and then those who don't have their mother houses here in our diocese, but also serve in our parishes or schools. Mm-hmm. We have a few, few of those religious as well, plus a number of religious priests serving who are from Africa or, sure, sure. or other places. Um, we're really blessed. And we have houses, House of Dominicans, a house of Jesuits that they go to school at Notre Dame. I visit with them. Uh, so so we really are blessed with a lot of religious in the diocese. Did you ever discern with a religious order? No, I mean, I did think about it, but I never went to the point where I started visiting places. Mm-hmm. But I would have, I mean, I did have some, some draw there. Uh, I remember as a young adult, did consider it, but never a serious process of discernment. Uh-huh. Uh, I probably would have been more attracted to like a teaching order, like the Jesuits or the Dominicans. Okay. Although I've always had a soft spot for the Franciscans as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you mentioned the need that we have to share this vocation with our children, especially encourage them to be open to it. Any suggestions on practical ways to do that, especially when my dad went to our Catholic school, it was primarily sisters that taught. Uh, when I went to the same school, I think I, there was two or three that were there at some point during my term. And now there are none, n- no pun intended. There, <laughs> there are not any sisters teaching at the school. And so our kids, and especially my daughter, might go her entire life without ever seeing a sister around and and see their joy and their spirit and their charism. How do we encourage them to be open to this and maybe expose them to religious life? Well, I I would first try to talk to them, explain what it is, um, maybe through some of the saints that Mm. were religious, you know, telling them about St. Francis and St. Clair or St. Ignatius Loyola Mm -hmm. or Mother Teresa, St. Mother Teresa. And if there would be an opportunity to take them on a visit to a convent mm-hmm. or to a, uh, a religious house and maybe try to introduce them to religious. I do try to get our religious to participate in, and they do, in some of our youth ministry events, mm, diocesan yeah. events, confirmation rally, and things like that. So our young people do get to see them and meet them so that they are visible since we don't have that many that are working in schools. Now we do have a few in schools still, like Marion High School has a few sisters. Sure. And, but um, I really would like to get more sisters or even brothers in some of our Catholic high schools in particular, and grade schools. You know, I keep asking 
some communities that are getting more vocations, but I think they get, they're getting a lot of requests from a lot of bishops. So because they are fewer in number, it's hard to to get the because I think a lot of bishops are wanting to to uh, to get more religious in their dioceses. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, well, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can call or text the Holy Cross College text line. It's 260-436-9598. And we have some listener-submitted questions about reverence during Eucharistic adoration, uh, atheists getting angry talking about God, and Bishop's favorite liturgical feast coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. I will ask questions that you've submitted for bishop to respond to. I had a listener write, with the USCCB conference on the importance of the Eucharist, I am concerned that in my parish, Eucharistic adoration has been reduced to a minimum of reverence by quick exposition of the Blessed Sacrament without proper vestments, usual hymn, and repose of the Blessed Sacrament without usual hymn and prayers. It seems there is a rush to expose the Blessed Sacrament for the faithful and leave. When reposing the Blessed Sacrament again, no proper vestment or benediction, hymn or prayer, only a short hymn. Is this proper and acceptable now? I miss the complete reverent ritual I grew up with. This may have changed now, but appreciate your comments if this is still ongoing. Yes. Um, you know, one of the things with adoration and exposition, well, we're talking about ad, uh, exposition of the Most Holy Eucharist. Uh, obviously, it should be done with great reverence. And if the Blessed Sacrament is going to be exposed on the altar, there always have to be adorers present. Mm -hmm. That you can't just expose the Blessed Sacrament without making sure that there will always be people in the church there praying. Right. In some places, they may have exposition for an hour mm -hmm. because people can come and pray for that hour. Other places, they may have it all day because mm -hmm. they have a lot of people who will sign up. Some may even have it through the night and have perpetual adoration. But that's a lot of work because you have to have quite you know, hundreds of people yeah. like at uh, St. Mary Magdalene Oratory in at St. Vincent's in Fort Wayne. Mm -hmm. The question about exposing the Blessed Sacrament reverently. Yeah, there is in the ritual uh, how it's to be done. And yes, the priest or deacon normally is the one who would expose the Blessed Sacrament and mm -hmm. would do so with the proper vestments and usually sing a hymn, unless it's right after Mass. In other words, at the end of Mass, while the priest still has his chasuble on, he could also expose the Blessed Sacrament at that time. There is a an, uh, a provision of, and I'd have to look at the exact norm on this, where an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion mm -hmm. could expose the Blessed Sacrament, but I think there's some kind of special permission needed, and I'm sorry, I have to, I'd have to check that to give the exact norm about that, uh -huh. and could also repose it. But a layperson could never give benediction. Only the priest or, or deacon okay. should give benediction at the end of a period of solemn exposition. And when there is benediction with the Blessed Sacrament, the priest or deacon must be properly vested, and there should be a prayer, and there should be a hymn. All of that should be done properly. Uh, 
to just repose the Blessed Sacrament uh, should also be done in a very dignified way if there's not going to be benediction, especially if there's no priest or deacon there, and you have an extraordinary minister who's been given permission to repose the Blessed Sacrament, that should also be done with, um, with great reverence. Brian McMichael would be able to answer those questions more specifically. He's the director of our Office of Worship about how uh, here in our diocese, what kind of permission is needed. I, I presume that we've given pastors permission to allow that to be done by uh, extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion, but with the, with the proper care and devotion. Mm-hmm. So I guess maybe just a scenario here, uh, two o'clock, in the afternoon, um, the school wants to bring the kids over for adoration for a half an hour. Could the priest in his clerics wearing his black shirt with the collar go and expose the Blessed Sacrament for the children for half an hour, bring it back in? Because one of the concerns of the, the person writing the question was, you know, having the right vestments and the right music for exposition. Well, no, that would not be appropriate to just come out in one's black. And okay. No, that would not be appropriate. But, you know, for that short a time, I mean, I don't even know that that's even appropriate to have exposition. Why not just bring the children over and pray before the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament in the tabernacle? Okay. You know, I'm not real keen on these short exposition, you know, like, I would think that if you're going to expose the Blessed Sacrament, then you need to have more solemnity. Okay. About it, you know. Otherwise, just pray before the Lord in the tabernacle. I mean, it's still the Lord. Yeah. Still the Lord present. But if you're going to have exposition, there should be some solemnity to it. Yeah. There should be incense, you know. There okay. should be vestments, like you just said. Yeah. What I was thinking when I mentioned lay people, it wouldn't be so much in a situation like that. I'm thinking more in the sense of if you have a Blessed Sacrament Adoration Chapel. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I was thinking. Okay. Uh, but not in the scenario you just mentioned, like a school situation. I don't think it would be proper. That should be a priest or deacon. Right. All right. Another listener said, I've noticed that atheists often get angry when discussing God. Have you noticed this? Any thoughts on why this happens? I haven't noticed it, to be honest. Not that I have a lot of conversations with atheists, but atheists that I've met haven't really, I haven't really had much argument with. It's been more of a peaceful discussion. A few times I remember some anger towards the church on the part of atheists, mainly because of disagreements with the church on various moral issues. Mm -hmm. Why someone might get angry, maybe they've had some negative experience in their life with churches or Mm -hmm. with believers. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Finally, Father Eric Bergner from St. Vincent's Parish in Fort Wayne asked, this is part two of his question. Last week you answered your favorite secular holiday. So now he's asking, do you have a favorite liturgical feast or solemnity and why? Christmas. I mean, I know Easter's the greater solemnity. It's the solemnity of solemnities. Uh And I I, I mean, Easter is, is great. But I think as far as a uh, personal favorite would be Christmas, probably because of the very fond memories I have growing uh-huh. up with Christmas. And there's something that it particularly touches my heart about the the uh, the Christmas story and the birth of Jesus. Mm. God's love, so amazing, so incredible, that He would uh, become one of us. 
that, yeah. that he would take on our human nature. I mean, that's the great miracle of the incarnation is, uh, is so joyful. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again, Bishop, for another great episode. Just a reminder, if people have questions, they can text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And before we go, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Actually, I heard somebody refer to it as the apostolic blessing that a bishop was giving. Is that, that would a different be thing? different. Okay. Uh, I would just say Episcopal blessing. Okay. An apostolic blessing has an indulgence connected to it. Okay. So that... That would be within the context of a mass, but also a special situation. Right. Probably. Right. All right. Yeah. Then, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Yes. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Good job. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.